0: All right, as we um, continue, we're in the book of Ephesians over these next few weeks. And what we've been doing is we've been asking you to read the book of Ephesians. It's six little chapters and just to slowly read it. That's one invitation I have for you is to just read through the book of Ephesians slowly and to to, to write in your Bible. Or if you're using a Bible app there on your phone, uh, highlight things. Interact with it as you read it. The, uh, the second thing that we wanted to, to, to invite you to do is pick up one of these devotional guides that, that we've written that will lead you through the six chapters of, of Ephesians with great, we feel like, great reflection questions that will be a good guide for you. And then uh, the third invitation I have for you is maybe to pick up a copy of this thin little book called Sit, Walk, Stand. It's written by Watchman Nee. He's a Chinese, uh, became a Christian. Uh, then uh, ends up becoming a theologian and has an incredible uh, work here on the book of Ephesians where Watchman Nee is basically trying to summarize the entire book of Ephesians with those three words. That essentially uh, it's anti-American, it's actually anti-Western and perhaps anti-human to think that the very first thing we should learn how to do is to sit. Rather, we normally think it's to walk. You know, when is that baby going to start walking? And Watchman Nee says, in the Christian life, the very first thing and most important thing for us to learn how to do is to sit. That's to be seated with Christ, to rest in Christ, to know that identity that Christ has given you. And then he moves along by saying, you don't just learn to sit. uh, It does involve um, walking. You begin to walk out this new relationship with God. And then lastly, to stand. Stand against evil forces coming against you. Stand against things inside of you that are working against you. Um, So last week we looked at chapter one. We talked about who am I? It was all about identity and purpose and all of those superlatives that were listed there in chapter one about your identity. That you've been forgiven. You've been blessed. You've been loved. You've been chosen. And if you ever just need encouragement and you just kind of think, oh, where where do I turn in my Bible? Where where do I, I just need something really quickly here. Go to Ephesians chapter 1 and remember your identity. Remember who you are. So today in chapter 2, we're going to look at who was I? So last week was who am I? This week, the question really is who was I slash who am I? And How did God do this? And why did God do this? Regarding a key phrase that shows up in chapter 2, and that is that you who are in Christ have gone from being dead to being alive in Christ Jesus. How in the world did God do that? Why did God do that? So let's read. Verses are printed here for you. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through and then we've chosen verse 13 and 22. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. So this very first question is the who was I slash Who am I? Again, the first three chapters of Ephesians, uh, first three of six chapters, he's really trying to help us understand, the writer's trying to help us us understand our identity. Several times a day, you and I wonder, who am I? A lot of that's influenced by our skin color. A lot of that is influenced by uh, our family of origin. A lot of that is influenced by how much is in our bank account. A lot of that is influenced on... Uh, How many degrees we might have? How many friends we have? Have I gotten a promotion at work here recently? Do people really understand the real me that's in there that's just dying to come out? You and I face that all day long. And it's so powerful here that in Ephesians 1, to review, he's given you and I so much in that chapter to remind us about who we we really are, yet he also wants to remind us who you used to be. That's very intentional at why he's doing this. Um, he says, you were dead. Verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1, you were dead. Uh, now I'm thinking back about times when I thought I was dead. Uh, there were several times riding a motorcycle growing up. There were several times racing with my brother or a friend that I thought I was about to die. There's several times in driving a car way too fast that Oh, my God, I think I'm going to die. Um, any of you just learning to drive, don't listen to that part. Um, several times where you may have thought, I'm, I'm about to die, or there's a very good friend of mine who, he's so funny, and uh, during the week, he and, I, he and I will be texting each other, and I'll just I'll, I'll tell him, man, you're killing me. Like, his humor, he, he's killing me. So we throw this word around, killing me, or I'm about to die, kind of loosely, but the writer here is saying, a different kind of dead. You were spiritually dead. Now, we've all been told the story, um, pretty much, that if you can just increase your um, morality, become a better person, um, in fact, isn't that what church is all about? You just go to church and you're just trying to become better people. God is trying to take good people and make them better people. And our writer Paul is trying to really be very clear and set the record straight here that church and a relationship with God is not about taking good people and trying to make them better. He's taking dead people and making them alive. This is profound. This is significant. This is huge. Uh, he, he's wanting you to know that, that, that Christianity uh, is where we were once spiritual zombies, Imagine <laughs> how gross is that, how ridiculous that is. But that's the image he's wanting you to have in your mind. That's the picture. And there are people, they are people that maybe you know or I know, or people literally walking around physically, emotionally, spiritually, walking around, a woman, a, a man, and yet they're spiritual zombies. They're dead. They're dead. They're not spiritually alive. Yet God, in his generosity and in his grace, is inviting those people to have a relationship with God and whereby be made alive spiritually. That's the invitation that's going out. And so in this second chapter, he's saying this gift of life does not come by getting more achievements. This resurrection life, to be made alive, doesn't come by the vacation that you want to go on. Oh, life will be just great if I can just get married. Get, being married great. But this life that he's talking about, this deeper identity is not going to come through a husband. It's not going to come through a raise at your job. It's not going to come from selling that creative thing that you've just created. The deepest part of my identity is not in achievements. We don't achieve a status with God. We're made alive to God by Christ. That's by grace is what's happening here. So to be out of a relationship with God means death. That's what he's talking about in the, in these verses and in all of the Bible. That's what death really means in the Bible. There's a physical death, but a much worse case scenario is a spiritual death and separation from God. So to be out of a relationship with God, and you may think about the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. Do you remember what the father says as the father is grieving about this son? He says, it was as if he was dead. It was as if he was dead. Same idea here going on. That this father understands that the son's disobedience, it wasn't just disobedience in terms of morality, not doing the right things. But uh, throughout the Hebrew scriptures, the word obedience is linked to the word worship. Therefore, when we're disobeying... It's really a much deeper thing than to-dos or not doing the right thing. It's an attitude that's saying, I won't worship God. God has no worth to me. There is no worth in God. My way is better. And all of that equals death. All of that is who you used to be. Notice verses 1 through 3. It's really a lot of language about you. You were dead, and you this, and you that, and it's all there. It's really a lot about you. But look at verse 4, how verse 4 begins to break in to this, what may be feeling like bad news right now. Oh, no, he said we're all dead. That's who I was. That's who you were because of verse 4. But, this is the biggest but you'll ever see. I just got to say that. Verse 4, look at it with me. But God who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. So during the week, when you're wondering, when you're really, really wondering and doubting, who am I? Who am I? Who am I? Remember that you're blessed, forgiven, loved, chosen. Remember who you were. I was dead. I was dead. Now remember in verse 4, and I want us to read it aloud together. Can we do that? Read verse 4 out loud together. I'll give you a second to find it. This is who you are now in Christ. Verse 4. Let's read it aloud. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. How did God do this? How did God do this? And when we say this case we've just forgotten what we just talked about the this is being brought from death to life how did God do that and we just want to make a simple statement right here that resurrection life is not an achievement you don't achieve it you don't say oh if you want to experience life in Christ you need to um, just read this book or you need to just do more for God, And then you will arrive, or you will achieve a sense of spirituality, and then you will be made alive in Christ. Or you don't say, I think God raised you up because you're Enneagram type, or you're Myers-Briggs personality type, or your family of origin is just the type of person that God is looking for. No. Resurrection life is not an achievement, but it's a gift. That's how God does this. Verse 6 says, he did it by raising us up with Christ. You're asked by a co-worker or you're asked by a family member, hey, so this whole Christianity thing, this whole thing of uh, being born again or being made alive, like, like, what is that all about? Mine and your response can be, here straight from verse 6, that we've been raised up with Christ we've been seated with Christ and what does that what does that phrase mean that you've been seated with Christ many of us right now are 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 seated meaning we're putting trust in we're sitting on a bank account we're putting trust in achievements we're putting trust in and our weight on how I'm going to be viewed by someone that's where we're gaining our status from and it's empty It's going to make you upset. It's going to disappoint you. And he's saying, no, no, no. You have a much deeper status than that. You have a much greater significance and stability. That's because you've been raised and seated with Christ. That's who you are. Nobody can take this away from you. Therefore, when you don't have a status at work, when you don't have a status in a particular relationship, when you might not even have a status here as a citizen in the United States, there's a deeper status and identity of who you are. Verse 7 through 9 of how God did this. He says, By the incomparable riches of his grace and his kindness to us. See, the scriptures aren't primarily about our sin. The scriptures are primarily about God's grace and God's mercy to win over our sin. That being made alive in Christ wins over you being dead. This is a spiritual reality. If you've experienced being made alive in Christ, you celebrate, you understand that you were once far away from God. And God, by His grace, by His grace, by His grace, has drawn you close and has given you a change in status that can never, ever, ever be lost or improved upon. Verses 8 and 9. I mean, these are famous verses. These, these, these verses are quoted by all sorts of people here. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, this not by yourselves, not as a result of works, so that no one can brag about it. No one can boast about this. So once again, the scriptures are not primarily about our failures, but it's about the success of Jesus and Jesus' finished work on the cross on behalf of us who fail and on behalf of us who are sinners. Verse 13 is another way that he tells you how he did this. Look how specific he gets here. By the blood of Christ. He's not afraid to say it. This is, this is meaning your status, you being brought to life to God in Christ Jesus meant nothing less than the sacrificial atoning death of Jesus. Why is blood? You were far away, but now you've been brought near. And in thinking through this this week, I just kept asking myself the question: why? Why, God? What, what motivates you, God? What what is it? Love. Love. He's intending to display His love and His grace to you and to me. He wants you to rest in it. As our author, Watchman Nee, says, He wants you to sit and sit longer than you've been sitting. He wants this to to marinate in you. He wants this to massage in you. And once we get it, He says, Great, now get it again. He wants to display his love and grace to you. And the second reason why he wants to do this is he wants to display his love and grace through you. See, did you catch that one? It's not just, oh, he's just going to love on us, and let's just all gather, and wow, aren't we loved? feels so good. Yes, I do love you, God speaking. I love you. I've made you alive in Christ. I've displayed my power, my grace, my mercy, my love to you in that way. Now, because that's true, I want you to go and display it to other people. I want you to display my love and my grace to other people, to be testimonies of God's grace, to be trophies of God's grace and what he's done in your workplace, in your families, in your places of hobby. In everything that we do, this is where we to do this. So here's the assignment. Uh-oh, that's right, there's an assignment. What is the assignment? It's in verse 10. Look at verse 10. It says, let's read it aloud together, verse 10. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God desires to display His grace and His love to you and through you. So good works, you see right here in this verse 10, and you've you kind of got your thinking cap on. You're saying, wait a minute, but you just said that it's not by good works. We're saved not by good works. Right. Correct. These good works is not legalism that's being talked about, but it's an assignment. It's a role. It's a role and a status that you and I have. Now there's a joyful responsibility and overflow that you and I have together. Handiwork, this word here, from the Greek word poema. We are God's poem. We are God's orchestra. And as you and I play our little sheet of music, sometimes thinking we're the only person with the instrument, sometimes thinking that we're the only one in this. God's poem, God's orchestra, God's masterpiece is all of you, he's speaking. So in Ephesians 2, the word y'all is used quite a bit. The Greek word there, the plural for you all. Um, So so really to get a better understanding of this, we we need to understand gift-giving in the ancient world. Uh, he's, he's wanting you to think of an image of a gift, and in this chapter 2, that gift is Christ Jesus, and that means salvation that comes through Jesus, that is the gift that's given to us. Faith also in this Christ is also a gift, uh, but, he's, but he's wanting us to know that uh, it's, it's a lot like uh, gift-giving in the East um, or the global South, where there's some reciprocity in the relationship. I remember living in Thailand for a number of years and when someone brought a plate or a dish of food over to you to give it to you, you received it and then you put something else back on that plate and you brought it right back over there to their house. There's reciprocity there in the relationship. And so a Western mindset that we sort of have with gifts and gift giving is, well, if somebody's doing that so that I'll give back, then they can just stop doing that. No strings attached, right? Like That is the quintessential Western mindset. The biblical understanding of gifts and gift giving is to either create or to reinforce a relationship. That's what's going on in Scripture when gifts are being given and this being the primary gift, we celebrate it at Christmas. When Christ comes, that is the most amazing, profound gift given to us to establish a personal relationship that we have with God. So it's in this generosity of God's gift giving that that would stir up in you a generosity so that we then, out of having received God's generous gift, we too begin to give it away. Those are the good works that have been created in advance for you. That's the assignment right there. That's the, uh, all of what the, the assignment means but you can't do it on your own. This is that moment where a lot of times you might hear uh, a a, a talk similar to this and it says, now now go do it. And this is the part about Christianity where the the message is we, we can't do it by ourselves. We need empowerment. You and I need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to do this. And that's why we've are going to verse 22 that's listed here. Let's read this one aloud together. And in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. What? Did that just say that God is living inside of you? Yes. Yes. This is profound. That assignment they're found in verse 10, that those good works created in advance that you can go and do them so that each morning whenever you wake up as a mom, as a dad, as, as an artist, as a musician, as a student, as a teacher, a engineer, a banker, whoever and whatever you're doing, you can wake up literally praying, God, show me today those good works that you've already created in advance so that I can not only walk in them, but that I can walk with you. Because verse 22 says, you're already in me, leading me. This is beautiful. This is powerful. So whatever God has called you to do, it's not because of our goodness, but it's once again verse 4 they're saying, but, that big but, but God who is rich in mercy and his grace. It's his grace. This means for us in your neighborhoods, in our communities to, I'm going to just present two quick things before we close. Uh, It means to bless other people. It means in your personal devotional time with God, whatever that looks like, it means for you sitting with God, sitting with Jesus, communing with God, listening to God, waiting on God to lead you towards blessing other people. You've been blessed, now go be a blessing. When we tire, when we get confused about what that blessing to others ought to look like, it's just a gentle reminder, I need to be back in God's presence so that I can be continually be getting recharged and reminded of who God is and who I am. We're human. We're going to get tired in that journey of blessing others. Another way, and this one may not sound as attractive, but is deeply powerful, and that is by confessing our sins one to another. This passage in Ephesians 2 doesn't say that, but other places in Scripture mentions that a way that we display God's grace and mercy and love to others is by confessing our own sin when we fail one another. There's a humility that can be there by God's grace to admit wrong. And to say things like, I have totally blown it with you. I dropped the ball. I didn't love you like I was supposed to. I didn't stand up for you like I was supposed to stand up for you. I didn't defend you like I was supposed to defend you. Or I attacked you because I got my feelings hurt from you, so therefore I went after you. God's grace and love is displayed in our relationships when we're able, by God's grace, to do that with each other and confess our sins. In conclusion, this is not about bad people being made good. Christianity is not about good people being made better people. Christianity is summarized, at least in part, here in this chapter 2 by saying dead people are made alive in Christ by grace. And the finished work that Christ has done in us, and as that grace continually comes to us and grows in us, it will be, it will be overflowing through us, through these good works that God has indeed already, uh, before time, created for us. So let's take a moment, let's take a moment and pause and just invite invite God and the Holy Spirit to, to work in us. Father, we invite you right now that you would work in us and through us. Not for our sake, but for the sake of the world. So that our families, our communities, our friends, our co-workers, that people would say, Hey, God's grace is on display. Hey, you're reflecting God's love. And Father, in our own little way, as we play our our little sheets of music that's part of a greater symphony, help us know that we're displaying your beauty, your wisdom, your mercy, your righteousness, your justice. Holy Spirit, work in our hearts. Amen.